Hello and welcome to the Mindful Men Podcast, a show inspiring men to be mindful about their lives. Each week, we'll dive into a range of topics that matter to men and hear from everyday people doing extraordinary things. So if you love the show, please give it a five-star rating and share it with your mates. Now, before we get into this week's episode, please note that some of the content may trigger you. And if this happens, please reach out to your support networks. It's really important. If you can't get enough of Mindful Men, head over to our website. It's www.mindful-men.com.au. Find the show notes and the links to our socials there. But for now, sit back, relax, and let's get mindful. G'day guys and welcome to another episode of the Mindful Men podcast. I'm your host Simon Rinney and today we're getting mindful about the impacts of alcohol abuse and liver transplant as a result. And joining me for today's discussion, I've got John Wyman from Maryland, USA. How are you going, John? I'm doing all right, Simon. How about you? I'm doing really well. Thanks so much for coming on. And we've actually had this plan for quite a few months and and I actually have to thank you. So as, as a mental health practitioner myself, when we originally planned this, I think it was late last year, early this year, I was going through a bit of a challenge myself, both you know psychologically and, and I was spent and I'd probably done too many podcasts, my wife would say. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to postpone this and you were very graceful in, in postponing and you've kept in contact. And I'm super excited to have this discussion today because you've got quite a story that I think so many guys out there particularly may be able to tune into and go, oh, what's going on in my life? What am I doing? And maybe I need to make some changes. So thanks so much for coming on and also your patience for getting this off the ground. Sure. Absolutely. I look forward to this for that long. I, I really have. I, I'm excited to talk to you. Now you're coming from us across the big blue and you're a, you, you describe yourself as a liver transplant thriver Correct. who's overcome overwhelming odds to become well. And you're also the founder of a marriage counseling practice, LifeBridge Coaching, which we'll go into both of those today. But this is a story around alcohol abuse and the impacts of that. And I'd love to hear about this today. So where does this story start? You know, We've got a, a huge drinking culture in Australia. We're talking about this off air and I think so many Guys out there particularly that we do struggle with alcohol sometimes, or some of us do really badly, you know, to the form of addiction or even just coping with with life's challenges. So so where does your story begin? Where does alcohol come into your life and how did it take hold? Simon, I like to think out loud. I like to Ed Sheeran it, as I call it. So you asked the question, I, I thought, well, I know exactly when it started. It started in seventh grade. It was the first Friday night of junior high school. And to back up in sixth grade, my two best friends came up to me and said, we can't be friends with you anymore because we like girls and you're not cool enough to, and walked away from me. So fast forward to seventh grade, and it was the first Friday night, and I wanted to be accepted by the classmates. So I decided that I would be more myself, so to speak, if I got drunk. And I went to people and made a fool of myself, but I was remembered. And that was the key. I learned that, honestly, that embarrassing myself got me remembered. And to back up even more, as the fifth child in my family, no one knew my name. And I learned at an early age 
that by being stupid, people remembered me. So fast forward to seventh grade and I learned alcohol, I act silly and all that and got me remembered. And around that time, my parents really had troubles. They went through divorce. It took them five years to get divorced, seventh grade through 12th grade. Those years, alcohol took more importance in my life. And I realized that, I mean, I basically, because of the chaos in the household, I developed a family outside of the household. And that was friends and friends who drink. Um, I'll never forget at 16 years old, I was driving home and I was drunk. And I just thought, you know, John, just turn right into the tree. Just turn right. And at the time, I was a big fan of Bruce Springsteen. As I got to a senior year in high school in my family, we had senior quotes that were big. They were talked about at dinner all the time. My senior quote was the first verse of Born to Run, which had the words, baby, this town rips the bones from your back. It's a death trap. It's a, a suicide rap. We got to get out while we're young because tramps like us, we were born to run. That was my senior quote, and no one caught it. I was screaming for help. No one caught it. But you know what? In the bar, I wasn't alone. I could always go find friends and drink in the bar. And that world, my high school graduation, no one went to. No one in my family went to because my parents' divorce was just terrible. My father was an executive at Citibank. He was medical director. And he left my mother basically homeless on the streets of New York City to marry his secretary. So there wasn't family. And I was the youngest. So everyone was grown and out. And, you know, no one went to my high school graduation. And fast forward to my college graduation, I didn't even go. I was in a bar drinking. You know, the, the interesting thing about my drinking is <laughs> it's going to be controversial, Simon. I never thought of myself as an alcoholic. I was a people-holic. I never needed a drink, ever. It was never like, oh, my God, this, that, I got to have a drink. I needed the people. And, you know, not having them at 21 years old, I was dating a woman for six months. And she says to me, I want to know where this is going because I want to get married. I didn't want to have more loss, which, by the way, did you hear the word love in there? I didn't. And I said, OK, we'll get married. And we got married. We had two children. I will say that drinking well what i did was in the marriage for 14 years i lied every single day it was the only thing i was consistent about was i lied and when i say i lied i didn't say i went to one store when i went to another i didn't say the things that were in my head one day 
my wife said to me, I want to have kids. And I was on the road to working with Dr. Masterson, getting my PhD, working at the Masterson Institute. I was all set. And that was in my head. That's not what came out of my mouth. What came out of my mouth was, okay, okay. And I just wanted to do the opposite of my father. Ironically, because of my father's emotional neglect of my mother, she drank too much. So there, I, there was emotional neglect in my marriage. I drank too much. And, uh, you know, again, the I never felt lonely drinking. I did feel lonely alone. And I was very alone. As the drinking got really bad, my ex and I separated. We were divorced. I lived in an apartment. And the apartment was a disaster area. I had two televisions, but they were on 24 hours a day. And every once in a while, I would clean up the apartment. Simon, it was the worst feeling in the world because I learned that those clothes on the floor were friends. I didn't feel lonely. I didn't feel empty. And when the apartment was clean, you'd think you'd feel good. No, I, I recognized I didn't have anything. And my drinking just continued and uh, got bad. I remember putting Visine in my eyes when they were yellow. And I didn't care. And one of the things that Dr. Masterson said to me that I'll never forget, and this is in treatment, he said, John, you have to understand six months before they stop lying. And it's not you went to one grocery store when you went to another. It was the stuff we don't want to admit to ourselves. So, you know, I knew I had cirrhosis. I just didn't want to face it. And I kept drinking. Ironically, and the dangerous thing about cirrhosis is six months before I was diagnosed, I got my blood tested. I had stomach pain. I went to the emergency room and I thought, I'm busted. It, you know, it, it's it's going to show. Didn't show. Six months later, I got tested. I was in there for four hours and they kept coming back and taking more blood and more blood and retesting and retesting. And they finally came in and said, all right, John, here's the deal. You're in complete liver failure. You keep doing what you're doing. You'll be dead in two months. And I said, okay, I'll stop. And I'll, I'll stop immediately. And I did. I had no insurance. I walked out of the hospital and I thought, what do I do? My mom, who was my hero, she had an incredible battle uh, with lymphoma. And I thought, well, if I can be half as strong as her, I'll be okay. I didn't go to rehab. I didn't do any of that. I just said, you know, I don't want to die. So very honestly, it was easy for me to stop. As Masterson told me, it's six months before you stop lying. This is now 16 years later. 
that not wanting to die was kind of a lie. The truth was, and I, I literally learned it, I walk every morning. In one of my walks, I learned it bothered me this. I know I didn't want to die. Of course, you don't want to die. But I thought dying would hurt. And I didn't want to go through the pain of cirrhosis. I didn't want that pain. And I didn't know what the pain was, but I thought dying was painful. Not only to me, but to everyone else, it was going to be painful. A year into it, I kept struggling with people. My mom's last words before she died were positive thoughts. Those were the last two words. And I tried to get in that mindset. Think positive, John. Think positive. And honestly, I struggled because I thought it was all bullshit. You know, people would say, John, positive attitude. You have positive attitude. You get healthy. You'll get healthy. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. But I bought into it a little bit. And after a year, I was a little healthier. And I thought to myself, well, am I healthier because I'm more positive? Or am I more positive because I'm healthier? And I didn't really care. I didn't care. I'm like, I just know I'm better. And the transplant world is very interesting. I was a year into it with cirrhosis, which, by the way, took me six months to even say the word cirrhosis out loud, alone in a room to myself. I was ashamed of that word. That word was the guy, the drunk on the corner with the brown bag. That's not me. Yeah, cirrhosis is you, John. You, you have cirrhosis and struggled to accept that disease. It took me two years to get in front of a team of doctors. And I did at Penn in Philadelphia, which if I can make a plug, to me, they're the best in the world. And uh, I sat in front of 12 doctors and Dr. Shaked, who I owe my life to, said to me, so, John, you messed up your liver. Why should we give you one? And I spoke in a passion I never knew I had. And I will never forget this. I guaranteed him I was going to make it to that table. And I said, Dr. Shaked. After that, it's your turn. You got to do the rest. And just uh, as a side note to that, fast forward 12 years, I'm outside the operating room on the stretcher and he comes by and I said, Dr. Shaked, you remember what I said? I saw him four times in 12 years. And he goes, yeah, John, I remember. It's my turn now. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is going to be easy. You know, and ironically, and you can tell me where to stop or whatever. But when I was on the operating room table, it's a very interesting environment. The team is all in there. The rock stars are the surgeons. They're not in the room. They, they come in after you, you're uh, under anesthesia. And they're like, hey, John, what do you want to hear? What do you want to hear? You know, what music? And I said, Bruce Springsteen, I want to hear Thunder Road. And literally the entire team is singing Thunder Road with me. That ended. And then they said, what next? And I said, born to run. 
And I broke down and started crying because I realized that, oh my God, this is what I heard. This is the start of it. This is what I thought when I was really in a dark place in my youth. And it was incredible. And by the end of the song, I was under. But in a moment of whatever you want to call it, I went and saw Bruce. He played here in Baltimore last year. And his first two encores were Thunder Road and Born to Run. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> it was great. So, you know, the path to transplant, if there's one thing I'd like to leave your audience with, is you don't want to go through what I did. The medical consequences of alcohol abuse, you have no idea. Yeah. I'll start with, I have my transplant. I'm good. I'm healthy. I'm going tomorrow. This is three years later. I'm going tomorrow for my MRI and CT scan because they found cancer when they took out my liver and they think they got it all. So I have to get tested every three months for five years. Simon, so the month of July was hell for me because all I did was worry about it. What if it's, you know, and I, I do try to have the positive attitude, but I'd be lying to you. I mean, if I didn't, like, I worry. I worry about it. Um, I'm so lucky, you know, through the course of the road of transplant, two strokes, one I was on life support for five days, never knowing if I was going to wake up or not. One of the things that caused the stroke, uh, in addition to alcohol, was, as I said, my uh, parents' divorce was very ugly. Well, my father remarried twice. And his third wife wrote me out of the will. And all I wanted, and I was the one who was there for him. All I wanted was my father's medical records. That's all I wanted. Which, by the way, he was diagnosed with alcoholic dementia. In his later years, he succumbed to the bottle. I never got those records. The judge promised me. And I felt so violated. And my brothers and sisters were like, they didn't support me in that. And I drove home and uh, I was so upset about it. The next day I had my stroke. Mm. That was an incredible experience. My wife found me laying in a pool of blood. I was there for five hours and flown to the hospital. And you know, again, five days later, I woke up. Another thing, uh, I mean, at least a dozen surgeries. I mean, I, I mentioned the word surgery, like matter-of-factly. There was something called TIPS, transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic stent put in your liver. Do you know what cirrhosis is? Well, I'm going to ask that because it's bandied around. We've heard of it, but I'd love for you to describe it because you, you talk around like the different physical aspects. And, and the reason why I didn't say anything is because sometimes you just got to hear a story in its entirety before and, and really reflect on that. And you have such a story 
And our stories can go over decades as well. So it's really important to see, hear these things in context. But the one key thing was like, is A, what is cirrhosis? Tell us what that is and what it felt like for you. And then also like, yeah, like the impact of the transplant. How did the transplant happen? Like what's the process to even get a liver transplant? You mentioned before, like you were in front of a team of surgeons and they're saying, why yeah. should we give you one? Yeah. How well do you have to be to be able to even get one in the first place? Talk us through these kind of these concepts for people that are unfamiliar with this. Well, first I'll show you cirrhosis. Oh, wow. And for anyone who's listening, we do have this on YouTube as well. So you can see a, an image of there from, from John as well. So that is my liver. Wow. What cirrhosis is, is scar tissue. Blood can't go through scars. So Dr. Reddy told me there's something called sinusoids, and they're little pathways, and there's um, the portal vein and the hepatic vein. And what tips is they put a stent to connect the two so blood can go through. And the other part of cirrhosis is since the blood can't go through the liver as well as it should, the cells are squeezed. And this is the patient's perspective. The cells are squeezed and the, the fluid is squeezed out of the cells so the blood can go through. Well, that fluid accumulates. I was having... 20 liters of fluid taken out every week. I looked pregnant and they drain it. And what's also drained is the protein from your body. So then after that's done, you are exhausted beyond belief. And I made a promise to myself that I, I always parked farthest away. And I made it, I would walk to my car every time. And I had 4,000 pounds of fluid drained from my body. Wow. And yes, that number is correct. Wow. 4,000 pounds. So what were some of the other symptoms that you were experiencing prior to the transplant? Like, what did it feel like to have cirrhosis of the liver? <laughs> Too much information for you here, but you're, you're exhausted. Hmm. I'm glad you have a sense of humor. Well, when I had to pee, I sat down because I had to rest. And the ironic thing is, the first time after my transplant, I stood up peeing. I was like, what's going on here? <laughs> I didn't. I was like, well, I haven't done this in years. And that's one of the things. The other part of it is it's really tough because your days and nights get mixed up. Mm. You don't sleep at night. That is really tough to deal with because you have to work and you're not sleeping all night and then you got to go to work. But one of the most, this is the scariest thing I'd say, um, there's something called hepatic encephalopathy. Are you familiar with what that is? Or No, describe it for us. Okay. What you have to do to literally stay sane, you're on a, a, a laxative called lacculose. You have to poop three times a day. You have to get the toxins out of your body. Because if the toxins don't leave your body, they go to your brain. And one time, a dear friend of mine, her daughter was pregnant and delivered their baby. 
I didn't take my lactulose for 30 hours. And after that, I drove about seven hours to for work. The next day, and I remember driving. All I remember is trucks were honking their horn at me loud. I didn't know why. And the next day, I'm driving somewhere, and a friend of mine calls me and notices something's wrong. And I'm like, Karen, you worry. What do you, you know, she said, John, there's something wrong with you. You're not yourself. I'm like, I'm just frustrated because I can't read my GPS. She's like, what? I'm like, I can't read it. Something's wrong. And she said, no, John, something's wrong. I'm calling your brother. And I'm like, okay. She goes, well, give me his number. And I'm going through my phone. She goes, John, give me your brother's number. I'm still going through my phone. She goes, John, what's your brother's name? I don't know. Wow. John, what's your name? I don't know. She's like, oh, my God, tell me what you see. And luckily, I was right by an exit that had a pharmacy. And she somehow called my doctor. She knew who my doctor was told them the pharmacy. I told her the exit in the pharmacy and they got me lactulose and I took a big dose of it and went right away and I was fine. But I had hepatic encephalopathy twice in my wait for transplant. The second time I was talking to my sister and Abraham Lincoln came knocking on my door and she's like, what? I'm like, Abe's here. Yeah, he's here. He's got his hat on and everything. She's like, John, there's something wrong. I'm like, no, there's not. You hallucinate. You hallucinate because the toxins, you, they go to your brain. And you can't mess with that. And the lactulose, by the way, tastes horrible. It is the worst tasting medicine you ever had. And you have no choice, but you have to take it. So, you know, that's a problem. Mm. And you sit there and go, the whole time you're thinking, really, the drinking was worth it, huh? Another thing that it does is uh, you have no strength. I played, I see you have two basketball and a rugby ball behind you. Yep, yep. All right. Well, basketball, I played. When I had cirrhosis, I couldn't reach the basket on a free throw. Couldn't reach it. Your strength is all taken away from you. Albumin is the main protein in the liver, and it's gone. It's gone. Forget it. So your strength is gone. Sex drive, gone. I mean, your thoughts, your sleep, your um, motivation, everything. And by the way, you don't really have a lot of support because you drank all the support away. That's pretty tough. Yeah, I was going to ask how the impact of your drinking and then also the cirrhosis as well and getting to that point, what was the impact on your family? You mentioned you had two kids. I had two kids. Um, yeah, I did. And um, the impact of my parents' divorce is also another reason I drank. But in my divorce, I didn't even have a lawyer. I gave up everything. And I mean everything. As I said, my father was medical director of Citibank. 
I learned the hard way that my ex didn't really marry me. She married my father's money. And I gave up everything. And I remember that we were having some financial problems in divorce. The kids were 15 and 17. And I said to her, I gave her three times the amount of money the court set. And it was running out. And I said to her, you know, you may want to think about, you know, going back to work. Money's getting tight. And I borrowed $50,000 from my father. She said, well, stop paying him back. He doesn't need the money. And I did that. I stopped paying him back, which was one of the reasons I got cut out of the will. Mm, wow. That cost me $2.2 million. But she didn't go back to work. And she told the story to my kids that basically, well, your dad doesn't love you anymore. He can't give us money. To this day, I haven't been given the chance to tell my side of the story. Yes, I drank too much. There's no doubt about it. I had a business and I made a key business mistake. I had one customer. They accounted for 90% of my business. And they were very profitable and they moved away like that. And I should have diversified more, but when you're getting business like that, you don't. But I, my kids, my son's, my youngest son's best friend carried me into the house after my transplant. I've been given a chance to explain to other people what happened, but my kids won't take my call. And, um, you know, that that's pretty tough. They were technically my next of kin when I had my stroke and did not answer the doctor's phone call. They almost killed me. But again, you know, I mean, this was all indirectly from drinking. Uh, I will never forget one time we were separated and I was in a bar. She called me and I ran outside and I called her back. What do you want? I'm at the store. And I heard a silence that screamed at me. And the silence was, I know where you are. I know you're drinking and I'm not going to worry about you killing yourself any longer. And the silence was over and she said, okay, goodbye. And I stood there for about five seconds. It was like, oh shit. 30 seconds later, I was in the bar drinking my beer. That road um, was tough, but family, again, my, my parents' divorce caused a lot more damage than one would think. My brothers and sisters, we were all split. And to this day, the dysfunction, none of us talk to each other. I talked to a brother and in, my, in this meeting with my father's will. I was in the middle. There was a brother and a sister against a brother and a sister. I just wanted my father's medical records. And one side said, well, he's not on our side, so he must be on their side. And they don't talk to me. And obviously, this was pre-transplant. And one of them, my brother, his daughter, I don't think there's anyone that's been more supportive of 
she went through a crushing re, uh, relationship breakup. I drove with cirrhosis eight hours to go comfort her. Wow. And the family was divided. And these are damages from not only family dysfunction, but, you know, alcohol and, and the after effects. Alcohol abuse is something that whether you're drinking or not, lasts with you the rest of your life. Um, some of the, the things that happened, I, I will pay till the day I die. You know, the people who are drinking, the medical consequences, like my stroke, basically related to alcohol. We live on the water and I have a boat. Well, I don't have the balance I used to have. Another consequence of it. Also, seizures. I've had, oh God, four or five seizures. Two of them, I'm pretty sure I flatlined. This was after stopping drinking. I take Keppra. I don't know if you know what Keppra is, but it's a, a medication that prevents seizures. And you literally have to take it every day. And if you don't, chances are you're going to have a seizure. That medical compliance is is very important. I'm also tell you about the transplant world. The patient has to understand very early on. Yes, it's about care, but it's about money. Failed transplants cost hospitals money. In Baltimore, my backyard is a place you know, Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. Pretty good hospital. They wouldn't talk to me. And the reason they wouldn't is because they were on probation for failed transplants. Now, it's not a function of their skill. They took too many people. And they have to make sure you're committed to that path. Because if you die while you're listed, that's a strike against them. Wow. I'll never forget one of the surgeries I had at, uh, I had a hernia. And the first year resident came in and he didn't know what he was talking about. And I told him, get out, went up the ladder and it finally went to Dr. Chiquette, the chief of transplant surgery. He asked one question, what's my red blood cell count? And he says to me, all right, John, here's the deal. We'll do the surgery, see what happens. And uh, I trust him. So I was like, okay. He said, you'll probably be here a month. I said, come back next Tuesday. Came back. But when I left, I saw the guy second in command on the street. And he goes, I said, oh, hey, doctor, I got a quick question for you. He goes, what's that? I said, I think I figured out what this is all about. He goes, oh, yeah, what's that? I said, it's about money. He goes, damn right it is. <laughs> you damn right. This is on the streets of Philly, and it's about money. Yeah, it's about care, but it's in our best interest to keep you alive. So I didn't want to make that decision in your case. I wanted your kid to make it. No one wanted to make it. That's why he gets paid the big bucks. Yeah. Again, I mean, you know, Simon, this all goes back to alcohol. I mean, it is the penalty the punishment you have is forever but honestly if i had to do it all over again 
I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Not the drinking, the path to transplant. Because I did learn a lot about the positive perspective. I don't know your holidays, but if if you, like Labor Day is next month. It's a holiday here. It's in a month away. And if you said, hey, John, we should get together for Labor Day. Go out on the boat or whatever. What are you doing? My answer prior to transplant would be, Simon, give me a break. I don't know if I'm going to make the Labor Day. I learned to just appreciate tomorrow. That's it. I couldn't see into the future. I couldn't do it. If you said, what are your plans for Christmas? Simon, no. No, I don't have any plans for Christmas. Tomorrow I have plans for it. And I learned to appreciate tomorrow. You've got such a story. We could probably do six hours of this. Most people do a couple, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) You've got so many points that I just want to draw out from you. And and you're such a sharer. I'm I'm a big believer that sharing is caring. I'm a sharer too. And I like to share it all, warts and all, just so that people can maybe be inspired by one aspect of it. But I am mindful that I don't want to keep you too long today as well. And, I, and I've got clients to see later on too. So you've touched on like the impacts of alcohol abuse, the transplant, all that world as well, the impact on family and, and particularly as a father as well. Yeah. Knowing your story and having gone through everything you've gone through, why do you think it's important for you to share this story? I mean, I'm a sharer. I know why I share my story. Why do you feel it necessary to share your story? So 15 people die having what I had. Live with that one for a little bit. 15 people died and I was close to them and I'm the only one alive. It's also important to realize the reality of transplant. Yeah, I'm a liver transplant thriver, but I'll never forget, I maybe had two, three days to live. And Dr. Altoff, I woke up from my third surgery in the month of May 2020, and they said, John, there's an ambulance outside. You're going to get a transplant. I'm like, okay, cool. And Dr. Altoff comes into my room at Penn and said, John, we're 100% confident we have the right donor for you. We just have to wait for the family to say goodbye. Mm. You hear that? Someone had to die for me to live. To this day, I haven't reconciled that. I don't know how alcohol did that much damage. And um, I benefited, and I've tried to contact the donor's family, but uh, and I want to. I'll never give up on that. But it kills a lot of people. One of my close friends, drinking buddies, he was diagnosed around the same time I was. And I ran into him one day and I said, Bill, he was drinking. I was like, what are you doing? And he said, John, I can't do what you're doing. I'm going out like this. And he was dead like two months later. I like to say things happen fast and things happen slow. You ignore both of them. You will blink. I have a client right now, the woman, is slowly losing everyone. I will say another thing about alcohol and how it changes your perspective. I'll do a little promotion. I wrote a book called The Jersey Kind of Love. I'll send it to you, whatever. But half the book I wrote hammered 
out of my mind, hammered, the other half sober. Well, one of the things I wrote hammered was I killed two people in the book. I had them die. And when I stopped drinking, I thought, wait a second here. They were good characters. Why did they have to die? They don't have to die. And I tore up those pages and rewrote the story. Alcohol poisons your mind in ways that you will never, I mean, it, it just destroys it. And that book is an example. I I can't believe I had those characters die. And so, and people don't see, I have this couple, the mother is drinking too much and she's losing her children and doesn't see it doesn't see it and it's a tragedy yeah wow that's why share my goal is if this saves one person's life tonight that's a good thing and we won't know who that is we won't know you don't want to go down the road i did yeah it was tough. I'm actually going to put the the links into both of our respective organ donation as well, organization. I'm an organ donor as well. And I always look at it from the perspective of if I'm in a situation similar to yours and I need something, someone, yeah, who's unfortunately passed away and they've given me the gift of life, I'd love to be able to repay that to somebody else when I'm no longer around as well. So I think that's a really noble thing for anyone out there who's either an organ donor or has been or knows somebody who has been or is thinking about it as well. It's quite a noble thing. So you prompted me to put those links in there. I'm going to do that. Can I tell you a great story? A quick story I had about donation. We have a boat and I was walking down the dock one day and I saw this boat and it was called Rum Seekers. And the guy's drinking. And I say to him, passing by, I say, hey, man, I'd love to join you. And I lift up my shirt and I said, but I can't. I had a transplant. He lifts up his shirt, shows me his transplant scar. He was a live donor for his mother. Wow. He donated half of his liver and his mother is still alive today. Wow. I was like, I hugged him. I was like, thank you, man. Thank you so much. It was such a great moment. Live donation is, and the liver grows back. You don't have to worry. And, you know, the guy was drinking a drink. So live donation is, uh, one of my nephews once said, John, I want to be your live donor. And I said, why? He said, chicks dig scars. (laughs) (laughs) Like, all right, man. (laughs) So that was great. Well, speaking about scars, and you've got quite a few of them. Sure. Internally, out externally as well. And as a fellow lived experience therapist myself, someone who in my world, I'm in the mental health space, I share my story with the hope that it inspires just one person to to go and seek help themselves. Tell us about LifeBridge coaching. So we've gone through your personal story, but how do you, I guess, use your life experience, your learned experience to also support other people who are going through challenges as well? Okay. My practice, LifeBridge coaching, I'm a marriage counselor and you know, what I believe. Well, my mom was the one who got me into the the field, really. She said something when I was just new into it, and I never understood what it meant. She said, John, you have a gift. You see people. I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, no, you really see them. And when I sit with couples, I can describe what they're feeling. They're like, how do you know that? (laughs) I I don't know how. But um, what I've done is I've created a model where people traditionally in this field 
They do an hour and that's it. And you got to walk out. I don't believe that works. I can do it, but I don't believe it works. What I do is I charge per session, not per hour. I want them to walk out better than they walked in. And I really don't care how long it goes. Typically, it goes about three hours and it flies by. In addition to the session, they both have open access to call me anytime they want. And if we talk for an hour, it's included. While we've been speaking, I've had three calls. So <laughs> I'll be working today. But my approach is this is, the, and I'm Gottman trained, John and Julie Gottman, which I, I love. This is their life. And I can't say to them, hey, sorry, our time's up. People ask how I schedule. Well, um, I'm probably not the best businessman, but I, I schedule like one in the morning, one in the evening. And in the middle, I have that time to anyone who calls. So I'm recognized as one of the, I have over 200 and uh, almost 255 star reviews on Google, whatever it is. Um, there's a thumbtack site and those reviews are not solicited. Those people have sent them because of this model. So uh, it's recognized in the United States as one of the highest rate in the country. So I'm proud of that and pr proud of this model I've created. So that's life bridge coaching. I, I love it. I have a sex therapist that works for me. I have a pastoral counselor that works for me and I have a life coach that works for me as well. So it's, I'm very lucky to have the people I have. Wonderful. Does alcohol abuse come up in those conversations often? I would say 30% of them are alcohol. I had, well, literally that number is probably low. Mm. Two of them today were alcohol. I had a call in a session where the guy, the alcoholic, has a psychotic episode and really scared him. And he stopped drinking, and last weekend he drank. And so we had to talk about that. And uh, you have to close that chapter of your life. You can't go back to that world. My mouthwash doesn't even have alcohol. I want my uh, favorite meal is chicken marsala. I don't have it anymore because it has wine in it. It's not like I think I'm going to be tempted. I've just closed the chapter of alcohol. It's not It's not going to happen. So it's, I know that mouthwash thing's a little extreme, but just why? I don't, I want my body alcohol free. Yeah. Completely alcohol free. Wow. And you've got quite a story to back it up, quite a bit of evidence to back it up as to why you're doing that. So I really do appreciate you coming on. And again, as we said at the start of the episode, I appreciate your giving me the space to come into this conversation as we've been quite a few months. And I'm so glad we've stayed in touch because this is yeah. such a powerful discussion that we're having. I'm going to let you get to those three phone calls in a second. But the last question I ask all of my guests is to plug something that makes them feel good. So this could be something you're watching on telly, listening to, reading. You've got a great story of a photo behind you. So just wink, wink. <laughs> if you want to plug that, that's okay. But if you don't, we can leave that for another time. But yeah, something that is making you feel good so that someone listening can tune into that as well, make themselves feel good too. Oh, 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 wow. Well, I'll, I'll combine this with music, but I will never forget. I was in the transplant waiting room and a patient asked me, what do I want to be remembered for? And at first I was like, what do you know that I don't know? And I thought about it and I said, I want to be remembered for loving and accepting everyone for exactly who they are and maybe making them laugh a little bit. And in my head, I thought, 
she's going to like that answer. That's a good answer. And she floored me. And she said, are you living that way? Mm. And I was like, oh, wow. Wow. You know, I don't know. And she said, why don't you try? And I, uh, one thing I will plug is the Gottman method. And the reason I'll plug it is one of the reasons we're talking. Gottman Institute, John and Julie believe the number one thing you can do for your marriage is honor your partner's dream. And when I got back into this field, I completed their training and my wife and I, I was dating her and I didn't have the money to open up a practice. So I go to over to her house to bitch and complain. And I'm like, I can't believe I was this stupid. I, I can't do this now. I know me. I'm not going to save money. And she said, well, why don't you just use my living room? And I thought, huh? You realize you're going to have people coming in your house that you don't know, and they don't like each other. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> and she said, well, that's okay. You know, we'll just put up two doors to make it private for you so you can work. And I said, I was really confused. And I said, why would you do that? And she had no Gottman training. And she said, well, you said it was your dream. I want you to have your dream. And she has honored that dream. We live on the water, my boat, our boat, I'm sorry. I mean, and when she went through a business divorce, I dropped everything. Honoring the dream and, and looking into the Gottman method for a marriage is huge. The research shows it takes six years of a problem to pick up the phone and make a call. I don't worry about the people I see. I worry about the ones I don't. Mm -hmm. And I do Zoom literally worldwide. So do it anytime you want. And I'd probably like to refer people to you too, Simon. <laughs> oh, I'd love it. We will talk more. I can imagine this conversation is going to go for decades to come. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> but John, thanks so much again for coming on the Mindful Man podcast. I have absolutely enjoyed our time together. I'm so grateful for you to come on and share your story. Thank you, Simon. I, I really appreciate it. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode and I hope you got some value from it. If anything triggered your mental health today, please reach out to your support networks. Also, if you loved what you heard, be sure to subscribe to the show and share it with your mates. For more from Mindful Men, you can check us out on Instagram and YouTube and I'll throw the links to these pages in the show notes below. But until next time, stay mindful.